Church, I'm here to read the Bible reading to you this morning and it's from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and I will be reading the whole chapter. Um, the heading in my Bible says, Pleasures are meaningless. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what he has already, sorry, than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil 
into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days there is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Thanks, Lynette. Morning, everyone. Great chapter, isn't it? Who's depressed? A couple of us. Well, we're continuing in our drag through Ecclesiastes. We're going to finish it. In six weeks, that's the good news. Between now and then, it's going to be a journey. It's a great book, actually. It's a very good book, and I commend it to you. Though many people read the book, and they end up feeling worse about life than they did when they, before they started. They find it depressive, and for various reasons. So I want to address that <coughs> uh, at the beginning this morning, and then encourage you to both read the book, but to look for the truth in the book, what God's message is to you. So let's pray for that now and let's jump in. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you especially for this book, Ecclesiastes. Help us, Lord, to understand it. Help us to hear the truths that you have inspired to be recorded and help us to reflect, to learn, and to be motivated to be closer companions of the Lord Jesus. Lord, speak to us, we pray, by your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you're going to understand Ecclesiastes easier or better, then it's very helpful, as I wrote in the bulletin, for you to read the background, the life of Solomon. It's in 1 Kings chapter 2 to chapter 11. And if you read that, you'll get a very good insight into the thrust of his life. He's a man who starts well. I mean, he's got David as... His dad, that's the king, who was not a perfect man and he did lots of things wrong, sure, but he was a man after God's own heart. He was a very godly man, wrote many of the Psalms and so on, and learnt life experiences. And Solomon was raised under that sort of teaching. Um, And then when dad dies and Solomon becomes king, uh, then he has this very high spiritual experience. One night has a dream and uh, God appears to him and God says, what can I give you? And he says, Make, give me wisdom. 
Not give me this, give me that. He says, give me wisdom that I might know how to govern your people. And God was, both answers that prayer, but was very pleased with his response too. And he said, well, I'll not only give you wisdom and knowledge, I'll also give you riches and honour and fame and everything else that goes with it. That's in chapter 3. <clears throat> uh, and then he, his kingdom expands and he is a very prosperous, very successful person. Let me read to you from 1 Kings 4.22 and following. This is what he had every day. This is the daily portions that he served up in his palace and for you know, his staff and guests and whoever else was there. Verse 22, Solomon's daily portions were 30 cores of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle and 20 of pasture-fed That's 30 cows a day. That's a lot of steak. A lot of smoking, mate, to be done there. That's not the end of it. A hundred sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks and choice fowl. Hunting as well. That's the daily menu. You would feed thousands of people with it, but that's an indication of his affluence and his demands. In fact, as you read through those chapters in Kings, and I encourage you to do so, you'll find that he divided the whole land of Israel into 12 provinces, and each one of the provinces he gave a month to. And so this province, so let's say it was Queensland, we are responsible to provide the food to Canberra uh, for the month of November. Follow? That's what he did throughout the whole land of Israel. And on top of that, he has his own personal resources and wealth. He began well. By chapter 7, he has built the temple. In chapter 8, he prays a magnificent prayer of dedication and commitment to God. Uh, but then he goes off the rails. 1 Kings 11, which is the last chapter that records the life of Solomon. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelite, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. 700. It's incomprehensible, isn't it? 700, and that's not enough, because he also had 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women he had for his own pleasure. As Solomon grew old... His wife turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Life of Solomon. Begins well, makes bad choices, drifts spiritually, ends up getting into very sinful ways. And Ecclesiastes, I think, is a record of his life experiences as he looks back now at the, towards the end of his life, looks back over his life and he shares snippets from his journal and what he has learnt. And we would do well to listen to Solomon. We would do well to learn the lessons that he learnt to save ourselves from going through the same disastrous choices. As we'll cover this morning, you'll see that many people in our society are doing exactly what he did to try and find the solution, the meaning, the direction for life, whatever. So Solomon was a very successful man, a very um, rich man, who used all of that, and as he tells us in chapter 2 and verse 3, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. That's his purpose in writing. 
as he looks back on life, this is his reflection. If you like, this is his repentance. This is him encouraging people, don't make the same stupid mistakes that I did. I tried to live life under the sun. I tried to live life just on the horizontal plane. I tried to live life ignoring God, not obeying his commands, not listening to him and so on. I was, my wives led me astray, yes, but it's, he's the one who was responsible for going astray. He says, I got it wrong. And in fact, the things that you're looking for in meaning in life, they're not all that cracked up to be. <clears throat> so we do well if we're going to listen to this man and learn from him. He calls himself in this book, of course, he doesn't give his name. He never calls himself Solomon. He calls himself the king of Israel. You know, calls himself the greatest king that was. And that would be him. And there's nobody else who this will qualify for. And he uses a word called, which is translated either as teacher or the preacher, or in some Bibles it translates just the Hebrew word, kawaleth. It's difficult to translate the idea of that into one English word, but it's think of it like philosopher, an investigator, um, a professor, um, a person who considers the issues of life, thinks about it deeply and draws a conclusion and then wants to um, share what he has learnt with others. Literally, the word means to call an assembly and to teach the people who have gathered together. It's him. He's the one who's called them together to teach them. He's an observer, a searcher, an educator. Well, before we jump in this morning's passage, I want to say this by way of introduction, that Solomon is to be commended because he does something that we all find, I generalise, that most people find very uncomfortable to do. He faces life square on. And life, when you look at it seriously, is not pretty. Most of us have happy, contented lives. But the big exception, the reason for that is that for most of us, we know Jesus, we know God. And we're not living life under the sun. We're living life under the sun related to God. It's a totally different perspective, as we'll get to. Solomon's looking at life as people who have pushed God away, they've excluded God. It's just us. There is no God. There is don't know what happens after death, but it's this life. What can we do? And if you do that, then you will come to the same conclusion that life under the sun is filled with suffering and pain and death. It's Romans chapter 8 says that because of sin, God has um, subjected creation to futility. And that's what this world is full of, disappointment and heartache. Some more than others, but all of us have our ups and downs and all of us at some point go through these awful, numbing experiences. Solomon's searching for the meaning of life. He says at the beginning of this chapter, I said to myself, it's a personal search. It's the record of his journal. He doesn't consult his father and what his dad could tell him. He doesn't consult other wise people and what they've learned or Bible teachers or anybody else. He doesn't even appear to have prayed. God, can you guide me on my search? I said to myself, and you'll find I undertook. And then I said to myself all the way through the book, this is his personal journey and it's his personal learnings. He uncovers the reality of pain and suffering. And in fact, the end of chapter one he says, the more you know, the worse it is. There is a certain level of bliss in being ignorant of how bad things really are. 
For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He's basically saying, the longer I went on on this journey, the more I discovered, the worse it got. The bigger the hole was inside, the more empty. I, be I became aware that I was emptier than when I first started. Um, and as I said, most of us are not prepared to take that look at life. We look for escapes. We do things. I do things like that. Who wants to talk about life and its reality when it's so depressive and miserable and awful without God? Because God and Je Jesus answers the questions that trouble us. When I was 17, my grandfather had cancer and he would die that year. And that started me on my own spiritual quest. Before that, I wasn't too interested in God. But when he got sick, then I started asking questions. What's life all about? What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? What happens when you die? How do you know? That started me on my spiritual search. I was 17 years of age. He was 62. And I thought, if you get to live till you're 62 or 70, and then you die and there's nothing, well, what's the point? Why bother? End it now. So I became suicidal. I tried several times to think of ways, well, tried ways to take my life, you know, drove a car as fast as I possibly could, but when it got up to about 70 miles an hour, the thing would shake and rattle and I would get scared and back off. I wasn't really committed to suicide, was I? <clears throat> it's that painful experience that we seek to avoid. And this chapter 2 particularly will highlight for us how people in our world are doing exactly that. One of the ways I escape this horrible world is by watching movies. And if I didn't engage in a movie and get involved in that story and not think about all the stuff that's going on, that's a good movie for me. I watch it for escapism. But if I'm watching a movie and it's too close to real life, I don't escape. That pulls me into it. And that's not as enjoyable experience for me. Which is why I love those huge distractions of those romantic comedies. Chick flicks, you would call them. Just can't get enough. I'm lying right now. But that's what life does to you. We are masters at avoiding the questions and the implications. How many people have you spoken to and asked the questions that I was asking? You know, have you thought about death? Have you thought about what happens after death? Do you believe in, you know, heaven and hell? Do you believe in eternity? And they, many people will go... I haven't given much thought to that. Well, why not? It's a pretty important question. Avoid it. Don't want to know. It's too hard. And it's C.S. Lewis, I think, who said, isn't it, that God speaks in our conscience, uh, whispers in our conscience, speaks in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. One of the reasons God subjected creation to futility is to get our attention. God doesn't intend, doesn't want us to live life without him. He wants us to live life with him, and this life is not all there is. This is a test. And Solomon will discover that, certainly some of those truths of it. So I think Solomon is to be commended for not covering up reality, but for exposing it for what it is. And as I said, the more he sees and tries, the more his own life is pierced by the thorns and thistles of this fallen, broken world. Well, let's jump in. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Yep, the scriptures should, they'll just scroll through for us as we work our way through this chapter. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what's good. And he tells you the conclusion. So he's not backing off and he's very honest. He said, this also proved to be meaningless. It proved to be just empty and hollow. 
you enjoy it at the time, but it doesn't last. You have to do it again, and you enjoy that, but it doesn't last. And after a while, you just get tired of being on the, the loop, around and around and around, and what's it all for? Well, he says, verse 2, he tried laughter. We all try that one in our world. Laughter is the comedians and the clowns and the funny one-liners and everything else. I bet he paid a lot of money to have the comedians come in and make me laugh, distract me from life, uh, make jokes about life, and that's what comedians do. Comedians are great observers of life, the really good ones are, and they just tell you reality, which then becomes funny. Rhonda had this meme during the week. You want to know if you're young or if you're old? If you fall, and if you fall over, and if people laugh at you, you're young. But if you fall, and people come running towards you, you're old. It's true, isn't it? We laugh at the slapstick things that happen to one another, and they get played and played again. Do you see the news this week? This is totally off track. Do you see the news this week of a lady who got engaged, had this beautiful diamond ring, she has these two dogs, I don't know if they're Irish setters, but they have long noses. And she put the diamond ring on the nose of the dog and she was going to take a photo of it to put on her Facebook to say that she's engaged. What did the dog do? You could see it coming. And obviously she must have done that with biscuits or something. How stupid, a diamond ring. Oh, I'm sure she'll get it back. <laughs> Life is like that. I tried laughter, Solomon says, the comedians. When we are insecure, make a joke, make fun of others. When we're bored, anything can cheer us up. And unfortunately, humour in our world tends to degenerate into sexual innuendo or sarcasm, or it can become quite cruel. We laugh at the misfortunes of others. Um, and don't get me wrong, I enjoy laughing. I, and you can access it, just go on YouTube. You can find a whole lot of funny stuff. Um, but you've just got to be discerning and careful. Laughter is good for us. But Solomon is saying, if that's all you're doing with your life, if you're trying to cover up the pain of life, that's not what life is about. It actually becomes a distraction which doesn't lead you somewhere. And in fact, as he'll go on to show, if you want real joy in your life, you'll get that. Not by laughing at others, but by connecting with God. He goes on and says in verse 3 that he tried wine. Alcohol. Many people in our society are doing exactly that, to try and numb the pain of life or find out what it is. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. I don't think he means he was getting drunk, you know, regular wild parties or anything. I think he means it was a controlled experiment. He was trying some of the most expensive wines and enjoying it in moderation and this, ex, uh, assessing his experiences and so on and trying it with different foods and having a wow of a time. And he says, well, as nice as that was, it doesn't fulfil it. It still leaves you empty. He went on to say in verses 4 to 6 about huge building projects that he undertook. I built. And notice in this that it's all plural. It's not singular. And the best thing of all is it's all for him. It's not for anybody else. I undertook great projects, he says. I, <clears throat> I built houses for myself and planted vineyards, plural. 
which would be supplying the wine that he was trying back in verse 3. Houses for myself. He took seven years to build the temple, which was a magnificent building. He took nearly 14 years to build his palace. Twice as long, twice as big, far more expensive. Where was his focus? See, he started the drift already, moving away from a man who was living for God in this world, rather than he was living for himself without God. Verse 5, I made gardens and parks, you know, for his own enjoyment, for him to walk through. The botanical gardens and so on. Well, he had those in all of his places and houses. Gardens and parks, huge areas. And I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, orchards, different sorts of fruits, which would supply his own table again. He went on to say that I also made in verse 6, I made reservoirs of water uh, to water the groves of flourishing trees. So he's bought these huge parks, these almost forests, and he's made these large Olympic-sized swimming pools, huge things, 40 feet deep, filled with water to be a water supply for these plants that he had planted. And why did he do it all? For himself. Because he thought he would find that meaningful and helpful, that it would fill the hole that was inside of him. And he'll tell us later on in the chapter that he did enjoy the building experience, and he enjoyed the success of it. But at the end of it, he was still left empty inside. Um, Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my house. So he's gone out to get, he's bought slaves. This is domestic staff. These are the people who are going to work all of the operations and all of the properties that he's now got, people working in the vineyards and people in the palace and cleaning the palace and cooking in the palace and the wardrobes for the palace and the shoes for the palace and the yada yada and on and on and on. And he not just bought male and female slaves, if they got married and they had kids, then those kids belonged to him as well. Huge stuff. He's in control of it all. The richest man in the world. And the Bible calls him also the wisest man in the world. I own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem. Herds of cattle and horses, flocks of sheep and goats, and they in turn would be used to feed his domestic staff and guests on a daily basis as we read before. How could he afford all of this? Well, verse 8, I amass silver and gold for myself. Read 1 Kings 10 and you'll read about gold about 14 times, something like that. A lot of times. He sent ships around the world that would take three years before they returned with their cargo and gold. Sending them out all around the world. He reigned for 40 years. I amassed silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces, the diamonds and the gems and the precious stones. He had it all. He even went to the extreme, which is an incredible luxury in the ancient world. I acquired male and female singers. He had his own band, a rock and roll band. No, it'd be country and western, surely. But it says female singers. All the choirs were male. To have female singers, that's an exotic rarity. And then on top of that, he has a harem, which we read about before. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And suddenly the wisest man in the world becomes the stupidest man in the world, doesn't he? Is that right? The answer is yes, if you're struggling for an answer to that one. 
I became greater than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. What does that mean? He still thinks he's wise. He still thinks he's being godly. He's not. He's now being deceived. He's saying, at least, I didn't lose control. I was in control of each of these extremes that I was doing. Verse 10, I didn't deny myself anything. Verse 11, but when I look back and I surveyed it all, waste of time, chasing the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So then he tries something different. Verse 12, then I turned my thoughts to consider, well, wisdom or folly, which is the best way to live? Should you live your life uh, conservatively, thinking, planning, um, being cautious, um, being wise, or abandon that and just live carefree and spontaneous, take whatever comes down the pike, whatever happens, happens, and I'll enjoy it as I go. Which one's better? He says, well, I think this one's better, being wise. The wise has eyes in their head, meaning they can look ahead and they can anticipate when things are not going to go well and they can prepare for it. But the fool, he rushes on in the darkness without any preparation and disaster's coming and it just hurts so much. It's better to be wise. And he thought about it and he said, but you know what? The fool dies, so does the wise person die. So what's the point in being wise if we're both going to end up dead? Wisdom might be better to live in this life with, under the sun, without God. But without God, life lacks meaning, lacks substance. That's where he's going to go. So he moves on. Uh, Verse 15 and 16 talks about the fate of the wise and so on. Verse 16, uh, when you die, you will not be remembered. That comes up several times through the book and it stings him. He obviously was a man, a rich man, a wise man, a very influential man who wanted to be remembered for generations to come. And we do because he's in the Bible. But from his observation of life was, people don't remember the previous generations. Put up your hand if you know who John Gilbert is. All of those in the 8.30 service, don't put your hand up. John Gilbert. Nobody knows. No, I didn't either. I had to look him up. He was the most famous actor in the world a hundred years ago. Silent movies. And we haven't heard of him. See, what Solomon says is right. And you are not remembered You might be remembered for another generation or maybe the next generation after that, but nobody gets remembered for all time. And there are very few exceptions to that. And we only remember some people because of history that tells us. Some people, you know, make tombstones out of stone and they engrave their names in it, but they fade. I've been to cemeteries. They fade. I've gone looking for relatives generations ago, four generations ago, hard to find, find their gravesite. pyramids were built because the pharaoh wanted to be remembered do you know the names of the pharaohs for whom the pharaohs were built and unless you're a buff you won't i don't i know the name of one of the of the pyramids cheops but i don't know who cheops was what sort of a pharaoh was how influential he was you're forgotten and solomon that aggravates solomon so what's the point of living It's not enjoyable. You enjoy these part-time experiences. They don't last. Where is life headed? So he says, verse 17, so I began to hate my life because of all the work that is done under the sun. It says, grievous. 
It leaves you empty with a heartache inside. I hated all the things that I told Adam's son to do. Why, verse 18, because I have to leave them to my son. Most commentators will say uh, Solomon, at the end of his life, is now thinking about what's coming next. And it's his son, Rehoboam, who's going to become the king. And Rehoboam is a dropkick. He's an idiot. He's a fool. And in fact, in Rehoboam's time, in less than a year of him being king, the kingdom is divided. And Solomon's wealth and country boundaries begins to shrink under his rule. And Solomon said, I worked hard to amass all of this stuff and possessions and I've got to give it all to him. Why bother? That's what he's saying. Um, so my heart began to despair, he says in verse 20. Um, verse 23, I think, is remarkable. Even 3,000 years ago, he says, All of our days we work hard and it can be tough and cause us pain, but even at night... Our minds do not rest. It's true, isn't it? We get anxious and stressed about work. And when we go home, we toss and turn because we can't turn off. We're worried about things and anxious. Solomon's saying exactly the same back then. Life under the sun. Life without God in this fallen world. Well, he comes... God gets mentioned in the New Testament just about in every breath. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, God gets mentioned... But sometimes you have to hold your breath for a while before God gets a mention again. Well, we come to this wonderful section that we're going to go into this week, starting now and next week, that does bring God into it. <clears throat> Verse 24, he says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in your work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. If a person is enjoying life in terms of eating and drinking and surviving and even enjoying their work they find that satisfying that's from God that's not from someone who's living excluding God that's the gift of God to you God is not a killjoy he doesn't want us to enjoy life he does want us to enjoy life but he wants us to enjoy life with him and so he will withdraw his blessings because if you're trying to live life without him Solomon says, verse 25, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, who pleases God, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness, joy. But to the sinner, the one who excludes God, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases him, God. This too, that sinner's choice, it's meaningless and it's a chasing after the wind. So Solomon's gone down various paths. We're just at the beginning of his journey. And he's telling us <clears throat> life below on the horizontal plane, excluding God from life, is tough. What we need to do is to have the upward look. We need to include God in what we are doing, responding to Him in this life. That doesn't mean life's not going to be hard and tough, but it does mean that you're going to be resourced and helped. You'll understand the meaning and purpose behind it. That we do all things for him, for his honour and for his glory and for his purposes. And it's not meaningless if done for him. But it can be if you're just doing it for yourself because nothing lasts. Remember the story of the 12 spies who went into the, uh, the promised land and when they came back, they reported, 10 of them reported that the walls were too big and the people were too mean and cruel. I was tall as grasshoppers and 
we can't go in, we can't do it. And there were two who said, the walls are big and the people are big, but we can go in because God said that he would help us. Horizontal perspective. We're going to try and do this on our own and we can't do it. It's tough. The upward perspective, these two. Them saying, if we include God in this, if we take his perspective and obey him, then yes, we can do it. That's what Solomon is saying. You need that upward look. The outward look doesn't work without the upward look. Um, It's all about the upward look. Too many people look around and they fail to live looking up. So Solomon is sharing with us parts of his journey through his journal and he's telling us very honestly what life is like without God. And as I indicated just then, God is not a spoil sport. He's actually wanting to bless us. He wants us to take pleasure in the things that we have in life, but with him to enjoy what he provides for us. It's God's presence with us and for us, it's by his spirit through knowing the Lord Jesus. God's presence with us enables us to rejoice and to trust him for the presence that he gives us, the things in life that he gives us to enjoy. Each of the things he mentions have a good positive side to it. It's okay to have a house and it's okay to have sheep and goats and it's okay to enjoy yourself and it's okay to drink wine and it's okay to do this and it's okay to have a harem. Oh, no, it's not. Um, It's okay to be married and have a wife. All of the things he has are the gifts of God, but he took them to an extreme and distorted their purpose and meaning and they became meaningless. With God, life takes on a whole new direction and meaning. David, his father, Solomon's father, said, Psalm 16, speaking to God, in your presence there is fullness of joy, joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Joy and pleasures in knowing God. That's what Solomon is trying to teach us through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's really almost like if it's like... He's talking to people who don't know God, who don't have God in their life, and he's trying to shake them. You're wasting your time. Been there, done it, had it all, and it's not enough. You need God. That's where he's going with the book. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever it is that you do, do it all to the glory of God. Include God. Give thanks to him for all that he gives you. Enjoy your experiences that he gives you, knowing that this life is not long-term, it's not eternity, and that when you leave this life, you'll then go into his presence of joy and filled with pleasures, if you know him. I said I was going to finish. I forgot to tell you this little story. It's a nice little story. There was a boy who thought he was the... He took a baseball bat and a baseball, and he went outside, went into his backyard... <clears throat> and he was a very optimistic little kid, and he thought he was the best baseball batter in the world. So he went out with his bat, and he got the ball, and he threw the ball up in the air, and he swung, and he missed. Strike one. I am the greatest batter in the world. He picks the ball up, throws it up, swings, and misses. Strike two. I am the greatest batter in the world. 
Picks the ball up, throws it, swings, misses, strike three. Undeterred, he bends down, he picks up the ball and he says, I am the greatest pitcher in the world. His outlook impacted his attitude. The upward look helps us with the outward look. We need to include God in our lives. Let's pray. Thanks, Heavenly Father, for this book, for this truth, and for this insight that life without you is meaningless, is pointless. It's a hard gig. But Lord, life with you, loving you and obeying your commands... It's a life which is filled with joy and purpose and meaning. Thank you for Jesus and that he makes all the difference in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.